Amen. Please be seated. We've been in a Lenten series called Stories of Grace. Haven't our guest preachers been amazing? Oh my goodness, it has been so good for my soul. Mark Torgerson, Zach Zabonzak, and uh, Loida had me in tears last week uh, telling her story of grace. Uh, just an F, uh, by the way, if, if any of their sermons have blessed you, send them a note, send them a text or an email and just say, hey, I really appreciate hearing that. It's a good way for us to be connected as, as the body. Um, you know, I believe it's healthy for, uh, for our church to hear from our own members and attenders and to see them using their gifts of teaching and encouragement. And uh, just to give you a picture of where we're going, we just have a few weeks, believe it or not, uh, before Palm Sunday and Easter. Uh, so we're going to be continuing the series just for the next couple weeks. Uh, you're going to hear from me next week. Uh, and then to close out our series, you're going to hear from Peter Smith. And so hope we're looking forward to this series as well. Uh, today you're going to hear from Dan and Betsy Dobler, uh, many who you know very well as active members of our church family. Uh, you can read a little bit about their background in the church bulletin. I'm not going to say any of that or repeat it, but I do want to take a brief moment uh, just to simply honor Dan and Betsy. Uh, you know, the Apostle Paul, often in his greetings, he points out different people in his letters, and he says, hey, so-and-so has worked very hard for you in the Lord. These types of people should be honored. Uh, and this is who Dan and Betsy are. They are servants of God who work very hard for you in the Lord. Uh, Dan was the chair of our church when Pastor Rick ret uh, retired, uh, when the church called me, and when we had the first year of our vision committee. That was a busy season. <laughs> that was a busy time, and I know, I know our church is so grateful. But Dan has continued to serve, uh, despite his job responsibilities picking up. He has continued to serve in youth ministry uh, as a Sunday school teacher and as well as part of the youth ministry team. And you often see him serving up front as our worship leader. Uh, Betsy serves downstairs uh, very regularly in our young children and worship program, which is excellent. Uh, if you don't know what that is, you should learn more about it. And Betsy is also our regular HR uh, expert. And whenever we have a staffing need, which we do now, uh, she often lends her expertise, her time, her skills, and her advice. And it's, it's so welcome. So bottom line, uh, Dan and Betsy, they love God. They love people, and they love this church family. So let's warmly welcome them as they come up to share this gospel. Gosh, I wasn't expecting that. That was very nice of you to say. Thank you. Good morning, friends. I do want to thank Pastor Nate again for the gracious and kind invitation to Betsy and I to share with you a sermon of sorts. This morning, Betsy and I will share each a bit from our own experience, and it's our hope to weave together words that will, in some way, by God's grace, encourage you as you continue in on your own journey to the cross of Christ, and give you hope as you seek to follow him on whatever path he has you on right now. I'd like to share a bit, on, uh, for my part, about grace in the midst of pride, and Betsy will focus on grace in the midst of pain. Now, these two, pride and pain, are interwoven in both of our stories. And to be clear, pain is just a part of life. Some of it's the result of our own sin, but not all pain is the result of our own sinfulness or pride. How we face our pain is reflective of our hearts and can test our spirit. 
This morning will be more a personal testimony than exegesis per se or a three-point sermon for those of you who long to unpack the scriptures verse by verse or explore the origins of a text i offer my humble apologies i will give us a little something to chew on at the beginning and betsy will share more of a personal testimony please take what's helpful in the holy spirit and leave the rest first i have a confession to make about two years ago I succumbed to an influence that I was confident would never overpower me. Perhaps it was the sin of pride that made me vulnerable to this influence, believing that I would never fall victim to the wiles of those who would try to convince me that it would be a good thing for our family to get a dog. (laughs) But somehow, the admonition of my dear wife to, come on, Dan, live a little, came at just the right time and played on the heartstrings of my love for my family, who agreed that a dog would benefit us all. Izzy, our Havanese, has been part of our family now for almost two years, and my family was right for the most part. As those of you who have had a dog can attest, taming the wild beast takes consistent and diligent effort. Some dogs are smart, they learn quickly, they remain obedient, and others not so much. Izzy is, well, as Betsy likes to say, she's smart enough, which means she's probably like most of us. She knows some things. She's housebroken, is largely obedient, still has room for growth, plenty of opportunities to give and receive grace. Grace. It's commonly defined as unearned or unmerited favor. Now, Izzy needs grace every time that little knucklehead does something destructive, but this isn't the kind of grace that we're talking about in this series. The life-saving, life-transforming grace of God is a priceless gift purchased at inconceivable cost. God's saving grace through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus, indeed, is just that. A priceless gift purchased at inconceivable cost. Our sinfulness and brokenness could only be cleansed and healed by a perfect savior. Sin is endemic to us all. Because of our sinfulness, we're separated from God, and only by his great love in Christ can we be saved, reunited with him. God's saving grace is not only undeserved favor. It is also power for daily living for each of us. Let me say that again. God's saving grace is not only undeserved favor, but it's also power for daily living for each of us. We hear Paul in 1 Corinthians 15.10 say, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me has not been in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder, that is the effect of grace, than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. So to summarize, this undeserved favor overflows in powerful, practical helpfulness from God in our daily lives where we most need it. That help is also called grace because it's free. It's undeserved recreating us, renewing us, restoring us more fully in his image. I want to draw your attention again to the scripture that was read for us this morning by Steve. In Psalm 19, we have a beautifully poetic and profound expression of the grandeur and the goodness of God, both in his creation as well as his written word. 
In the first six verses, David proclaims the awesome nature of God made visible to all of us in the beauty of creation. He uses this as a backdrop for drawing our focus more intently on God, inviting us into a deeper relationship with him through his word. This is a remarkable psalm in so many ways, worth taking the time to embed in the depths of your own heart and soul. The first six verses of the psalm remind us all of the unfathomable glory of God he reveals repeatedly every single day in the world around us. Listen to these words again, this time from the New Revised Standard Version. The heavens are telling the glory of God. The firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words. Their voice is not heard. Yet their words go out to the ends of the earth. Their voice to the end of the world. In the heavens he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom from its wedding canopy. Like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the ends of them and its circuit to the end and nothing is hid from its heat. Verses 7 through 11, the psalmist continues to exalt the glory of God revealed in the divine or special revelation of God through his law, his decrees, his precepts, commandments, through the fear of him and his ordinances, through his word, and extolling the value of God's word above the most costly possessions, the most delectable of food, He says, more to be desired are these than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, drippings of the honeycomb. And then, the psalmist gives us a window into his own soul. Perhaps this is the reason he wrote the psalm to begin with. He utters this powerful, humble petition, a recognition of grace in verses 12 and 13 says this, but who can detect their error? Clear me from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from the insolent, often translated proud thoughts. Do not let them have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. In Psalm 19, we find an admonition of our own pride, an affirmation that we are not alone in this struggle against sin. We also find here a prescription for grace. A former professor of mine at Wheaton College Graduate School, Michael Mangus, penned a particularly poignant book on the topic of sin and grace entitled Signature Sins, Taming Our Wayward Hearts. In it, he discusses the subtle and deceptive facets of what are often referred to as the seven deadly sins and helps each of us take a closer look at our own hearts to discover the sins that beset each of us in particular, and with compassion and empathy, to help us open ourselves to the grace of God and the pursuit of holiness. This self-examination is not something we do just during Lent, but it is something that we take care during Lent to be a bit more intentional about. It's not easy. We need God's help. Clear me from hidden faults, the psalmist prays. In his exploration of sin and pride, Mangus outlines some of the outward and inward facets of pride. Now, as I have done a bit of internal gardening myself, I recognize aspects of both. I'm not going to go into all of the details of each of these. But the roots of sin run deep 
in my own soul. Some of the seeds of pride were sown on my own, some with the help of others, and the wounds and brokenness caused informative and painful relationships. For me, the vicious elements of what Dr. Mangus refers to as inward or secret pride involve largely distrust and presumption. Distrust, he defines as a rejection of God's will in favor of my own. My desires to know the future and my unwillingness to accept the unknown. Presumption, he defines as the distortion of hope, placing an inordinate and disrespectful reliance on self rather than on God's grace. The psalmist prays, clear me from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from the insolent, proud thoughts. In the story you're about to hear from Betsy, we both experienced pain in ways that we had never known. Truly, as I said earlier, the pain we suffer in this world, you and I, is not always the result of our own specific sins. It's the result of sin and brokenness of this world. However, we all, each one of us, are tested in times of pain. We all need God's grace to endure it and also to not be led astray in our own sinfulness or be tempted to do as Job's wife encouraged him to do in the midst of his own suffering to curse God and die. My own personal experience of the journey that Betsy and I had with our son Josiah was riddled with secret pride, distrust, and even presumption. In the midst of it all, I encountered the depths of God's grace in ways that forever changed my understanding of who God is. Maybe you, too, have experienced something of pain or even pride in your own life's journey. Maybe you're there right now. The bottom line for me in all of this is captured in the priceless word of God, specifically revealed in the Lord's Prayer. Without going into great detail about all the various aspects of my own personal journey, what I will share with you this, of this is something that I learned before, but I know more decisively the more I encounter the brokenness, chaos, sinfulness of my own heart, as well as this fallen world. It is in what Betsy's about to share of our journey, one of the central lessons of the journey for me. And it's this. God is God. I am not. He will do what he will do, whether I like it or not. Jesus taught us, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Friends, that's grace. I'm not here to lay judgment on myself or on anyone else here, for that matter. I only share these things as a way to encourage us each that God's grace is truly sufficient for each one of us, even when we feel like there is no hope. And that is where Betsy's story begins. Good morning. Um, like Dan, I want to thank Nate for inviting us to share a little bit about our story. Um, I'd also like to thank uh, our son Josiah, because a lot of what I'm going to share um, intersects with his history 
And so I, I just thank him for giving us permission to do that today. Well, some of you know Josiah was born with um, several life-threatening gastrointestinal birth defects. We weren't aware of these issues until after he was born, and it, and it all came as a, a really big shock to me and Dan. Josiah's delivery was very traumatic and scary. Soon after he was born, the doctors realized that the bottom of his esophagus was attached to his trachea, and the top of his esophagus was attached to nothing. It just ended in a blind pouch. They also realized he had at least one other gastrointestinal complication and likely issues with his spinal cord. Uh, we were told he might have missing vertebrae, along with heart and kidney issues, too. And he would likely have trouble eating by mouth, at least for the first couple of years of his life. So after Josiah was born, we had about two minutes to hold him before he went, without us, in an ambulance to Children's Memorial Hospital in Chicago because he needed surgery in the next 24 hours and his needs were too complex um, for what could be handled here locally. So the first few days of Josiah's life were truly a blur. I was recovering from his delivery, and Dan was traveling back and forth between two hospitals, Central DuPage Hospital here where I was, and Children's Memorial where Josiah was. He was doing everything to support me and to uh, figure out what was going on with Josiah, digesting it all, talking to the doctors, doing all the rest. And I was just in a daze. I was longing for my baby, who'd been taken with me so quickly, taken from me so quickly, and trying to understand the totality of everything that he was facing. And I was grieving for the infancy that I knew he wouldn't experience. The neonatologist told us it would be at least three weeks before Josiah could come home. Three weeks. That felt like a really long time. But we didn't know that three weeks would become three months, and then six months, and then longer than that. So in those early days after Josiah's birth in 2005, we prayed fervently for his healing. The church we were attending at the time prayed. This church prayed. People all over the world, many of whom we didn't know but that had heard about Josiah, prayed for him. They prayed that his esophagus would be healed and that he would grow strong, but his esophagus wasn't healed. He had three painful surgeries on his esophagus, each six to 12 hours long, in the first three weeks of his life. And each one was unsuccessful, and each one caused damage to his lungs. We weren't allowed to hold Josiah for the first month of his life because he had a chest tube, and that was the hospital policy. My arms literally ached to hold him. I begged God to be able to hold him. Was that too much to ask? Yet day after day, there were more complications, more barriers, more bad news. I got to the point where I wanted to pray, but I was afraid to pray. I felt like, at best, my prayers were met with silence, and at worst, it seemed to me, at least, as if they were met with cruelty, that Josiah was experiencing the exact opposite of what I earnestly begged for. We prayed for healing, Josiah had a setback. We prayed for good test results, 
and the results came back showing more concerns. We prayed just to hold him, and we were told, no, it's not safe. We prayed for successful surgery, and often the outcomes were not what we hoped they would be. We anointed him with oil. We prayed liturgies over him, and yet we so saw no visible evidence that God was at work. So I called a friend one particularly difficult afternoon, and I said, I can't pray. I'm afraid to pray. I'm mad at God. I feel like I can't trust him. I can't find anything to be thankful for. And her response was, then you don't need to pray. That's what we're here for. So we're going to pray for you. So I stopped praying. I didn't stop believing in God, but I gave myself permission to stop praying. I chose to trust that my silence before God wasn't too offensive for him and that it wouldn't be too much for him to forgive when I finally came around again. And I trusted that the church was praying when I didn't feel like I could. I was living moment by moment. My heart felt closed up. I couldn't envision feeling the joy of my salvation again. I was raw. Scripture that was meant to comfort was painful. Words of well-meaning encouragement and truth often stung. What I knew of God and what I was experiencing based upon my circumstances didn't match. So it was really unsettling. It was really confusing. I do want to acknowledge something really significant, and that is that um, we received tremendous prayer and practical support during this time from my parents, from other family, from friends, from our church, from this church, from people that we didn't know. Visits, cards, calls, money, train tickets, plane tickets, restaurant gift cards, food. Josiah got more stuffed animals, clothes, and books than any baby, I think, that I've ever known. Um, and if it weren't for this practical support, this love, this prayer, I know we wouldn't be where we were, where we are. And I saw God working in that, and I felt gratitude for that. But I was still just really raw. So now it was October, and a friend named Chloe, she came to visit me down at the hospital. Um, we sat in Josiah's hospital room, and, and I held him while we talked. He was uh, two months old, and he was stable enough to be held. But we just had another setback. Uh, the good news was that we'd found a surgeon up at the University of Minnesota who specialized in what's called long gap esophageal atresia repair. And we made arrangements for him, for Josiah to be transported there, for us to travel there. And everything was in place. The air ambulance was going to be covered by insurance. Our insurance was going to cover the cost for this out-of-state care. But just days before we were supposed to go, the surgeon found out that he needed to have his toe amputated. And um, in my pain, I was actually more upset about the fact that this was um, impeding our plans than I was feeling any empathy for this poor, kind surgeon who was facing a medical issue of his own. I just, it, I felt like I couldn't get a break. We couldn't get a break. So I sat and talked to Chloe and waxing and waning with all my questions and complaints and, you know, asking those good questions that, it's good and health, that are good and healthy to ask. Um, but some of it. Some of what I shared was admittedly very self-absorbed. And then when I finished, she looked at me, and she gently said, I'm going to pray that God restores to you the virtue of hope. And her gentle words sank in, and I knew she was right. And so I let her pray for me. 
and I rested in the knowledge that she'd continue to pray. Well, the surgeon recovered from his surgery, and we did make it up to Minnesota. And miraculously, the surgeon operated on Josiah, and he successfully attached his esophagus. We were elated. We had reason to rejoice. And then, about two weeks after that surgery, during a normal follow-up procedure, Josiah's beautifully repaired esophagus was torn. And we were back to almost the same place where we'd started, facing the realization that there was yet another excruciatingly long, painful surgery ahead of him, the fifth and three months of life. So now it was Thanksgiving, and I hadn't slept in my own bed since August, and I was done. I was overwhelmed, not only with seeing my sweet baby suffer, but also with witnessing the pain of so many others around me, other babies with birth anomalies much worse than Josiah's, children with cancer, teenagers having organ transplants and stem cell transplants, two infant roommates of Josiah who passed away, other families also living moment by moment with much less support than we had. Well, a couple from church was traveling up to Minnesota and they called to see if they could stop by the hospital while they were up there to say hi and bring anything. You know, maybe some books or a DVD to help distract us a little bit. So I said, sure, and if you have anything on the virtue of hope, I think that would probably be good for me too. So they came, and among many things, they brought several seasons of Seinfeld for Dan, one of his favorites. And they also brought this book that's by an author named David Adam. It's a Celtic book of daily prayers. Uh, they thought it might be helpful for me. So I took it and I just I set it aside, put it with my stuff, let it go. The first, or I'm sorry, the fifth surgery happened. And although we didn't realize it at the time, it allowed the surgeon to make uh, an even better repair of Josiah's esophagus than the one he had done before. So we know that now. God was working behind the scenes in the wilderness when to us it felt like he was absent. So one afternoon after that surgery, while I sat with Josiah in his hospital room, I grabbed the book of prayers. It was mid-December, and so I opened to Sunday. It was the first day of the devotional. The days were all blurring together for me at that point. It really didn't matter to me what day it was or what I was reading. It was the middle of the afternoon. I opened the morning prayer, and um, this is what I read, part of what I read. Our Father, that we may rejoice in the resurrection. Risen Christ, give us hope. That we may know that you have conquered death. Risen Christ, give us hope. That we may know that you have triumphed over the grave. Risen Christ, give us hope. That those in doubt and despair may see your light. Risen Christ, give us hope that those who are troubled in mind may know your peace. Risen Christ, give us hope, that those in pain and distress may know your presence. Risen Christ, give us hope, that those for caring for the terminally ill may know your power. Risen Christ, give us hope, that those who mourn may discover the joy of life eternal. Risen Christ, Give us hope.
As I sat in the hospital room, the Holy Spirit awakened in me the hope of heaven like I hadn't experienced before. The hope for the day when there's no more pain and no more suffering. The hope that remains when the esophagus tears and the infections come and the surgeries fail and the doctors say they don't know what to do. In those moments of grace on the pediatric floor in Minnesota, I was able to get beyond the beeps of the IV machine and the clicks of Josiah's feeding tube and the sterile smell of the hospital and the questions about our future and just rest in the knowledge that one day all things will be made new. It was a turning point. The book was one of my lifelines during that winter in Minnesota because most days I didn't have the words to pray but the book gave me the language that I needed. And I certainly didn't always feel hopeful. We didn't bring Josiah home until March of 2006, and he was born in August of 2005. We had many ups and downs during that winter and early spring, even almost losing him. And my hope was very up and down too, not a straight line trajectory towards perfection. Even after we got home and Josiah had been out of the hospital for a while, I often didn't feel great hope or really have a desire to do anything for God or to read the Bible. I still had questions. I was exhausted most days, trying to just reestablish some sort of equilibrium. Really, all I was able to do the first couple of years of Josiah's life was just take care of him and enjoy the simple moments of grace that come with having a young child that would sneak up on me and let God love me. On hard days, I would read the verses in Revelation 21 that say, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a beautiful bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. So, here we are, 15 years later. And slowly but surely, the Lord has and continues to gently and graciously redeem many of the painful things that our family experienced in beautiful ways we don't expect. Time has helped a lot too. And I'm praying again. And we cling to the hope of heaven. You know, I don't know why Josiah's infancy was so difficult. It's something I won't know, the side of heaven. Fifteen years later, though, I can see how God was powerfully present when I felt he was absent, how he was at work mightily when I felt like he was ignoring me and us. People who prayed for Josiah have been encouraged because he's doing so well now. And others have found inspiration in our family's story, and, and I'm grateful for that. So my hope for us this Lenten season, wherever we are on the road, perhaps for you this is a time of loss or loneliness, 
of illness, of strained relationship, or family tension, maybe challenges at work or at school, that wherever we are on the journey that we remember that the suffering we know now will not prevail, and that we remember the hope we have in Christ and in the transformative power of grace, grace in the midst of our sin and grace in the, main, in the midst of our pain and suffering. So to close, join me in praying the words of Psalm 1914 that are printed on the screen overhead. Let's pray. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O 